passage to say, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had a home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who had preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So he begins in verse 1 by reminding us that this is part of an intentional pursuit of his finding meaning in life. In other words, this, it wasn't just sort of mindless recklessness. There's a purpose to this. He's going to test himself with pleasure, guided by his mind, so he can find joy. And he pretty much covers all the bases here. Being li- uh, led by his mind, he begins with wine. A lot of people understand that. Life seems better after you've had one or two. So he adds that to his life. In verse 4, he decides he's going to build houses, but not just any house. He wants a, a big, beautiful house with, with gardens and play areas. Went to Home Depot every weekend to just kind of figure out the next best way to make his house that much better. Then verse 7, he built businesses. Of course, in an agrarian culture as this was, a man's wealth was tied to his land and his cattle, so he built an empire of sheep and cattle larger than anyone before him. And of course, you have to have employees to run your business and estate, so he acquired lots of slaves, even says he had home-born slaves, that was a a status symbol of the day, that's why he included that there. So he has wine, houses, huge flocks and herds replete with people to run it all, and then then in verse 8, he says he amasses large quantities of silver and gold. He was hoarding, he was really amassing true wealth. But a life of work and wealth, that's not enough. We have to have entertainment too. So he provided for himself male and female singers that he could call on to entertain him. Maybe, you know, sort of an ancient form of TV. You could just kind of plop down in front of at the end of a hard day's work. And it says he enjoyed the pleasures of men. In other words, women. Lots of them. Solomon would make the the greatest bachelor of our day blushed when it came to women. First Kings 11 tells us he had 700 wives and 300 concubines from all the surrounding nations. I mean, this guy held nothing back. He didn't just kind of dip a toe into the idols of pleasure and stuff. He did a great big cannonball off the high dive. And, and I think that's important to recognize, as he says in verses 9 and 10, he became great and increased more than all who preceded him in Jerusalem. 
The point is, somebody can't listen to this and kind of challenge Solomon and say, well, uh, you, you might have had uh, you know, some wealth and you partied a little bit, but man, I'm going to have a lot of wealth and I really know how to party, so I'm not really sure you know what you're talking about. We have to remember, Solomon was, was one of the wealthiest men of his day, uh, excuse me, the wealthiest man of his day, one of the wealthiest men ever in history. He was literally the, the Bill Gates or Warren Buffett of his day. He had more wealth than 10,000 people could ever spend. And as for the party life, like he's detailing, this guy lived it up. As verse 10 says, anything his eyes desired, he gave to them, anything. And unlike many people who might desire things, but we can't attain them or afford them, there was nothing he couldn't afford. Apparently there was no woman he couldn't have. There was no pleasure he couldn't attain. After all, like he said in verse 10, this pleasure was the reward of his heart for all of his labors. Work hard, play hard. Now I wonder, does any of that sound vaguely familiar? Working hard so you can have a successful career, a beautiful house, a big fat retirement account, and enjoy nice bottles of wine and entertainment for all your hard work? The majority of people in every culture and time period that would have read or heard this book, they wouldn't have really been able to relate to what Solomon was saying firsthand. I mean, they, obviously they can understand what Solomon was saying through his eyes, but they wouldn't have had much firsthand experience with this. For example, if you heard this while living in the feudal system of medieval Europe and you happen to be one of the lucky few who were born into the, the knight or the noble classes, then this might ring true. But if you were a serf, which nine-tenths of the people were, you wouldn't be able to relate to this at all and you had no hope of ever relating to this because your fate was determined by your class. But that's not the case with us. What this chapter describes is is pretty close to the American dream. It's what virtually all Americans want, and actually to a very real extent, extent, many already have, albeit at different levels. And that's where some of you might say, well, hold on a second here. I'm not so wealthy. I can have anything my heart desires. That's not me. Those are all the rich CEOs, the so-called 1%. We're always hearing about. I mean, I'm struggling just to make, uh, just to maintain a middle-class lifestyle. Okay, fair enough. You may not have the, the wealth of Solomon or, or Warren Buffett, but I'm willing to bet you're rich. I'm willing to bet you're wildly rich, as a matter of fact, and I want to take just a few minutes to prove that to you. I understand this isn't necessarily expositional or even theological, but I, I think it's important that we take a few minutes to do this just so we can let this text speak to us where we are instead of just kind of thinking, oh, well, that's for those people. It's not for me. There's a website called globalrichlist.com that you can go on to, and on there you can type in your annual household income, and it tells you where you rank in the world's population according to your income. So we'll start with a nice round number. Let's say your annual household income is $100,000. You will get this response. You are among the top 0.08% richest people in the world. You are the 5,067,405th richest person in the world, which is pretty crazy considering there are about 7.3 billion people in the world. So quick math tells you there are 7.295 billion people poorer than you, at least in relation to income. But I know most of us, or maybe all of us, don't make 100 grand a year. So let's go to a level that I think most of us would consider impoverished. Maybe it is under the, the poverty level in America. $15,000 a year. If that's what you make, you're still on the top 
And if you're wondering what you have to make to be in the top 1%, to be a 1%er of income earners in the world, 32500 a year. So congratulations, you're rich. Aren't you glad you came to church today to find out you're rich? Again, some of you might say, not so fast, Scott. Life's a lot more expensive here than in the middle of India. This is all relative. I'm struggling just to make it here. Okay, let's look at it from another perspective. According to Randy Alcorn's book, Work, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, statistically, if you have sufficient food, decent clothes, this is my favorite one, you live in a house that keeps the weather out. Not four bedroom, three bath, three car, just... You live in a house that keeps the weather out, and you own a reasonably reliable means of transportation, not a five series, a reasonably reliable means of transportation. If that's all you have, you're among the top 15% of the world's wealthy. Now, if you have any money saved at all, you have a hobby that requires you spending money, surfing, golfing, whatever. In other words, you have some discretionary income. You have a variety of clothes in your closet. You don't have to wear the same clothes every single day. You have two cars in any condition whatsoever, and you live in your own home. You're in the top 5% of the world's, we- the world's wealthy. Now, I-, I haven't even mentioned 50-inch TVs and iPads and $3 Starbucks and iPhones and Internet connections and air conditioning and all of these things that we have that even the wildly wealthy Solomon never had that we don't even consider lavish anymore. This is just standard fare. And of course, all of that's magnified even more when you consider almost half the world's population lives on less than 250 a day. Look, we could do this according to savings. We can look at this any different way we want, statist- by every statistical standard. We live in the wealthiest society in the history of man, and we happen to live in one of the wealthiest counties in the wealthiest society in history. The point is, Solomon is speaking right to us. This might as well have been written to modern-day America. This is largely what our society is based on. Working hard, living a nice, comfortable life, and saving enough so that you can enjoy the last few decades of your life doing whatever you want to do. Virtually our entire society is set up to support that. It's what almost any American would say they desire, including the vast majority of Christians. And then we come across Solomon here telling us that's all striving after the wind. For all of his self-centered pursuit, uh, pursuit of self-centered pleasure and stuff, he says there was no profit under the sun. Why was it all for nothing? Well, he gives us two reasons, picking up in verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom... Excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall, excuse me, it will also befall me. Why then have I been so extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise as with the fool. And as much as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. 
Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. So the first reason Solomon gives for the pursuit of these idols being meaningless is that he realized in the end, everyone ends up in the ground. He says that it does, it does seem to be wetter, uh, better to be wise than to be a fool. A fool is clueless. He just walks around in the darkness, but uh, the wise sees through that and he's able to make something of his life. But then in verses 15 and 16, he says, yeah, but the fate of, of the fool and the wise is the same. The human race has a 100% death rate. doesn't matter if you're wise or a fool, beautiful or ugly, fit or out of shape. We all end up in the same place eventually, dead and forgotten. So in the end, he concludes it was all vanity. What was the point of wisely managing life if we all have the same fate anyway? And reflecting on that, he expresses despair in verse 17. And in realizing the idols he had given his heart completely to were futile. He, he says he hated life. All that he lived for was meaningless. And even worse, he realized the futility of, all, of it all it extended beyond his life as he gives the second reason it was meaningless. And we'll call that the Paris Hilton syndrome. As he realized his massive wealth wouldn't outlast, uh, excuse me, was going to outlast him, he hated it even more when he realized it would all go to his heirs who hadn't given the blood, sweat, and tears that he'd given in working for it, yet they'd get to benefit for all of his labor, and who was to say they would be wise with it? His heir might be Paris Hilton, who would just blow it all. Which indeed is exactly what happened as his son Rehoboam acted Foolishly, when he took the throne from his father, and his father's king- kingdom was ripped into two, with the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes left to Rehoboam, which is actually a judgment from God, because Solomon had apostatized and followed the gods of his wives. So realizing this just made Solomon hate all the more the toil he had endured just to hand it off to someone who didn't do anything to get it and who might just blow it. So after attaining Everything that so many spend all their lives trying to attain times a thousand, Solomon says in verse 23, life is just painful and grievous. He toiled long and hard to amass all this stuff to attain pleasure, yet it didn't provide him any rest. His mind just kept going at night, he says. He couldn't sleep. It's been amazing to me to find out how many, you know, young celebrities after they die, how many we find out were on sleep medication or antidepressants, and I realize there are a host of reasons why people might be on those medications. I'm not categorically lumping everybody together and saying it's evil to be on those at all, but I'm just saying with what we're studying this morning, if rest, contentment, and fulfillment is found in stuff and the self-centered pleasure of this world, then why are so many who have all of that on sleep medication and antidepressants? Seems they'd be the most well-rested people in the world. Apparently a whole lot of people can relate all too well to Solomon. So we're left with some pretty honest and very depressing conclusions by the preacher. But in the last few verses of this chapter, he seems to offer a ray of hope. In verse 24 he says, 
There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Remember that Solomon's depressing conclusions are the result of his perspective of life under the sun, this life, the temporal, what we can see with our own eyes. That's the perspective of this book. But in this case, Solomon seems to kind of break through that, break through the, just life being relegated to the perspective under the sun, and he points us to the only place that doesn't end in futile meaninglessness. As these verses indicate, the only way anyone can begin to get beyond the futility of life under the sun is to realize that there is something, someone, beyond the immediate temporality of this life who has actually provided us with the food, drink, and work we have, all of the things that we celebrate and are thankful for on Thanksgiving Day. The starting point of understanding life is to understand we don't have food simply because of our hard work. We don't have jobs just because we're so awesome. We don't have health just because of our great genetics. Those things are gifts from a gracious God. He is the one to whom we owe thanksgiving for everything we have. Amazingly, we still receive these good gifts from Him, even if we're in sinful rebellion against Him. God is so generous, He even gives gifts to those who deny Him. Christ Himself referenced that when He told his disciples not to hate their enemies, but to love them so they could be like their Father in heaven who, Matthew 5, 45, causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How amazingly gracious God is that he even cares for those who hate or deny him. See, the, the truth of life is anything anyone has is from God. Man takes pride in all he's amassed through his toil and labor, yet the truth is, Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand has made me this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. For Samuel 2, 6 and 7, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. As Paul preached in Athens to the pagan philosophers, Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things, and he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God. Any wealth you have is from God. The impressive skills you have to advance in your career, they came from God. He even placed you right where you are. You weren't lucky or unlucky to have been born where you are. He appointed the time and the place that you were to live and the the times and the boundaries of the nation that you live in. Even your getting up, getting out of bed, walking around and breathing is from and because of Him. So like I said, the only way we can even begin to sort of make sense of life is anchored in this holiday that we just celebrated on Thursday, Thanksgiving. It's recognizing your life and everything in it is from God. 
As he says in verse 25, how could anyone enjoy even the most basic things in life, such as eating, without God? Which is why he says in verse 26, it's the sinner, the one who does not look to God, who has the futile task of working their entire lives only to realize it was all meaningless. It all went, out, went to someone else and they died. But although Solomon is pointing us in the right direction here, notice it's still painfully temporal. His examples here are still limited to the here and now, how we attain some satisfaction now. And so reading this forces us to ask, is that what God's about? Are the parade of prosperity preachers right? God wants us to have our best life now. God's most concerned with providing us a bunch of stuff now. This is God-given materialism. We can enjoy all the stuff of this life as long as we thank God for it. He, he gave them to us. He, he loves us. He wants us to have all of these idols. Any student of Scripture clearly knows the answer to that is no. So then we think, well, the answer must be the opposite then. We're not supposed to enjoy the things of this life. We don't seek pleasure. The answer is in asceticism, denying all pleasure. That's actually Buddhism's prescription to escaping the misery of life, getting rid of desire and attachment, which actually seems good until you realize we can't actually do that. And by that, I don't mean because of our sinful nature we can't. That's true too. But what I mean is we can't do that because we were created for pleasure. We were created to seek pleasure. We were created to worship, seek, and serve someone. Every human heart has that as its driving force. That's exactly why this world is so full of idols. Man is driven to that. So pleasure in and of itself is not a vain idol. It's when pleasure is ultimately sought in self and the things of the world under the sun. That's when it becomes vain and meaningless. Because then we're looking to some created thing to provide what only God can provide, even if we're giving him the credit for it. As Ecclesiastes makes clear, as I already said, we can't make sense of this life. We will never find true pleasure if our perspective is limited to life under the sun, we must recognize God as the owner, creator, and sustainer of all creation. But that doesn't mean we just recognize God so we can enjoy our stuff more. Thanks, God. Now I know what to be thankful for. Let's go shopping. That's not what this is about. God doesn't want us to want him so we can get a bunch of stuff from him. He has so much more than the, than the stuff and the passing pleasures of this world to give, although he graciously does give those things as we talked about. But those aren't the best things, not even close. As verse 26 says, to those who are his, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. And that doesn't mean he just makes us really smart and happy. Scripture defines exactly what that means. As for wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3 says, it is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ. Apart from him, we cannot attain true wisdom and knowledge. And it's the same thing with joy. True joy is only found in knowing God in Christ. As Christ prayed in John 17, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is defined as knowing God in Christ, 
And it is this knowing that leads to joy, as John began his first epistle by saying, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness, proclaiming to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested, manifested to us. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. True wisdom, knowledge, and joy is only found in knowing God in Christ. So when someone repents and bows their knee to him as king, master, and savior, that person receives eternal life, which is not only limited to eternity in heaven, but it also means immediate fellowship with God himself. We know the God of the universe, and we continually grow in the knowledge of him through whom our greatest joy is realized. So back to pleasure and stuff. God doesn't want to deny us pleasure and stuff. And I think that's important for us to realize. Be thankful for what you have. Enjoy giving and getting gifts on Christmas. God isn't Scrooge. He's not looking to rob us of that. He just wants us to realize that if we make self-centered pleasure and stuff our idols, the things that we're actually looking to for joy and contentment, we will be left in despair because we're replacing the God we were created to worship with some created thing. It's not the pleasure in the stuff that's wrong. It's thinking the pleasures and stuff of this world will actually fulfill our heart's desire when our hearts were created and find their greatest contentment and joy when we are most satisfied in God, when we know God. He is our treasure, not the pleasures and stuff of this world. So to get a biblical perspective on pleasure and stuff, there are three fundamental truths everyone must understand about this life and our reason for existence. And of course, these things should drive everything we do in this life. And that most of all includes Christians who can be too often easily lured by the self-centered pleasures and stuff of this world, just like those in the surrounding world are. So the first truth we must know that is to drive our lives is we were created to glorify God. We were created to glorify God. It's sad to me to think of how many people over the millennia have sought high and low to the answer to the meaning of life. The proverbial guy sitting on top of the hill that we go up to and say, what, what is this all about? Why are we here? I don't understand. What's the meaning of life? It's sad because the answer to that question is crystal clear in God's word. As God says in Isaiah 43, as he's delivering promises to Israel regarding its restoration, he says in verse 7, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. God created us for his glory, and that's the message from the beginning of Scripture to the end, literally. We're told in Genesis 1 that human beings were created to be distinctly different from the rest of creation. We're not just highly, more higher evolved life forms. We were created to be totally unique from all living creation in that we were created to reflect the character and glory of God. That's what it means in Genesis 1.26 when God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That means the entire human race has been created and given a unique purpose for our existence, and that is to image or reflect the glory of God. 
Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, when he said, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then we're reminded of this again at the end of the book, as our Creator is forever glorified by His creation as we sing in heaven, Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. We were created for God's glory, as Scripture reminds us from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. The truth of Scripture is God-centeredness, not man-centeredness. Yet how that just rubs the the sinful human heart the wrong way. We want to be the sinner, not God. But look what evil that desire is wrought. Which is what this book of Ecclesiastes is all about. If you're looking to your own wisdom and competence or to some other created thing to provide the power, approval, comfort, and security that only God can provide... If there's anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you, if you're substituting something for God in your heart or you're allowing something else to compete with God as the center of your life, then the result will be hopeless despair because we were not created to serve and worship ourselves or the false idols of this world. We were created to worship and glorify God. And although generation after generation is deceived into thinking self-centered pleasure and the stuff of this world is what's really going to give us contentment and security and happiness, it doesn't, it can't, it never has, and it never will because it goes against the very purpose for which we were created. So the starting point is recognizing we were created to glorify God. The second truth we must understand and that must drive our lives, which of course builds on the first, is true joy only comes from glorifying God. The way of the fallen human race is pretty much to look everywhere else but God to provide when only God can provide, and even his own people do this. And that's why scripture continually points us away from man and his disastrous attempt to steal God's glory and points us back to the only one worthy of being glorified, God. But the God-centeredness of scripture is not because God is vain. This isn't a a one-way street where we're kind of left saying, well, that's great for you, God, but I guess we're just kind of left out in the cold. Now, God created us not only to glorify him for his sake, but also so that we would find our most complete joy, happiness, and contentment when we glorify him. That's what brings us our greatest joy, not glorifying ourselves and the things of this world, but glorifying him. Like that psalm we, we just read a few minutes ago before Oscar prayed, Psalm 16, 5, I've set the... Uh, The Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely for you will not abandon my soul in hell. Neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. 
Psalm 144.15, how blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And of course, this unshakable joy is ultimately only found in the Savior Jesus Christ as we're celebrating this season. Luke chapter 2, verse 10, when the angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I will bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior, who is Christ our Lord. And again, that's the problem of the perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes. As long as the extent of our perspective is us, this life, we will never satisfy the, the longings that we have. As John Piper says, anyone who is only looking to self and the stuff of this world for meaning, fulfillment, joy, and contentment has missed the whole point of the universe. It's about the greatness of God, not the significance of man. God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself, that he is infinitely powerful, holy, wise, and beautiful, and we are not. The disproportion between us and God is far greater than between us and the farthest reaches of the immense universe. And that's why it's a tragedy of epic proportions to then in turn magnify ourselves, our pleasure, and our stuff, and make them the things that we live for and worship. But that's not to say that we are worthless. It doesn't nullify us. Despite God's infiniteness and our creatureliness, his love for us is so great that he he sent his son to save us, to give us eternal life, to gain us entrance into fellowship with him and to provide us the only thing that can satisfy our souls because our souls were created to stand in awe of a person, the only person worthy of our awe, Jesus Christ. When we recognize and glorify him for who he is, that is when we find our greatest joy, contentment, pleasure, and fulfillment. Which leads to the third and final point. We are to live with a passion for the glory of God through Christ in all things so that the nations can in turn receive life and joy in Him. See, this is the mission of a life that's been awakened by the God-centered truth of the universe. This is the mission of our lives, that we would glorify God in everything we do in every aspect of our lives, not only for our joy, but also so that others can be saved and enter into the joy of the Master. There's a lot to say about fulfilling our commissioning of our Lord to make disciples of the nations. But in the context of Ecclesiastes and the idols of this world, specifically the idols of pleasure and stuff, I want to look at this from a little bit different perspective this morning, utilizing 1 Peter 3.15, which says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Probably a pretty familiar verse that's commonly used to talk about apologetics, being ready to give a defense, and appropriately so. We can spend a lot of time doing that, and it's a good study. But what's often overlooked is the last phrase of that verse that says, be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. And that's a little bit startling. It doesn't seem to be talking about going out and doing evangelism. Rather, it's talking about someone coming to us and saying, what is it about you? What is it this, this hope you have inside of you? 
And I, I read that, and it just kind of makes me turn to myself and say, man, has anybody asked me that recently? And so I ask you, has anybody asked you that recently? And if so, awesome, praise God. But if not, why not? And I'm not saying this is the only reason, but I wonder, could part of it be because largely our lives look like we find our greatest joy, hope, and contentment in the exact same things the world does? Could it be because they really don't see a whole lot of difference between our lives and theirs? And if that's not you, like I said, awesome. But I think this is one of the big problems of the American evangelical church. Too often the glory of Christ is swallowed up by his gifts that we turn into idols, just like the world does. We just give God the credit for it. Forgive me for quoting Piper again, but I I don't know how it could be said any better than this on this subject. He says, The world is not impressed when Christians get rich and have nice houses and lots of stuff and say thanks to God. Praise God for it. He's blessed us so much. What shocks the world is when God is so satisfying that his people forsake the pleasures and stuff of this world for Christ's sake and count it gain. To proclaim to the world that Christ is the all-satisfying everything that he is and then to turn around and live with the exact same values, preoccupations, and pursuits of the world belies that proclamation. It makes him look to be less than he really is. It makes him look like a religious side interest who keeps us out of hell. Maybe he shows up every once in a while to help us out. But not that he's the all-satisfying treasure that if we have him and nothing else, we have everything. Yet that is what we are to be living for. And you know, in saying that, I, I I can hear it happening. I can hear the gears turning in your head. It would be happening if I was sitting there listening to this guy in the pulpit say all this stuff be arguing with him in my head, probably asking things like, what's wrong with that? I mean, we have to live this life, but what's, what's the big deal about eating out at that restaurant or shopping at that store or wanting a, a nice house and nice clothes and saving for my family and making wise investments and, and on and on and on? What's wrong with that? You tell me that's wrong? And those are good questions and those are natural questions, but I'm not going to answer them this morning. And it's not because I'm trying to dodge it. I brought it up. I'm not trying to dodge anything. I'm not going to answer them because glorifying God in Christ and finding our greatest satisfaction in Him isn't a how-to list. That's not to say a how-to list from Scripture isn't helpful. It might be. But, but a list of don'ts, don't do this, don't do that, doesn't lead to a lifestyle that oozes Christ as our greatest satisfaction and joy. The, the thing that people crave when they see the hope that is in us. So this morning, rather than offering a list of five ways to treasure Christ more, I want to challenge us instead with, with maybe changing the questions we're asking. So when it comes to our stuff and pleasure, rather than asking things like, well, why can't I do that? What's wrong with this? Instead, we should be asking things like, how will this thing or pursuit help me treasure Christ more? How will this help me show to others that Christ is my greatest treasure? How will this help me know Christ more, to love him more, to serve him more, to display him more? 
These are the questions we should be asking for everything we do in this life, very much including our pleasures and stuff. And in case you think I'm taking this a bit far, that's exactly what we are told to do in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything in life down to our eating and drinking is to be done for the glory of God. See, one of the greatest challenges of living as Christians in this time and place is, is becoming modern-day syncretists. You know, in the Old Testament, syncretism often meant taking on the various gods of the surrounding religions and then combining them into one big pantheon of gods that you worshipped. This is what Israel was often condemned for doing. It wasn't always that they had abandoned the one true God for the false gods. It was that sometimes they took all the false gods from the surrounding nations and they added them to the one true God. We can't do that. We can't proclaim that life is all about Christ and a nice house. Christ and a comfortable life. Christ and a successful career. Christ and a spouse. Christ and whatever fill in the blank you need to do that you think is going to make you happy. We can't do that. Either Christ is our everything or he's nothing. And again, if you think I'm taking this too far, that is exactly what Christ said in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. He, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and stuff. It's impossible. Either Jesus is your all-satisfying treasure, or the stuff of this world is. And again, that doesn't mean we have to abandon all forms of materialism and go live as monks in the middle of the wilderness. Like I said earlier, let's be thankful for the good gifts God has given us and enjoy them. That's scriptural. We should do that. But what we can never, ever do, and it is so difficult in this society we live in, it is an ongoing battle. Believe me, I know from firsthand experience. What we can never do is allow any of the pleasures and stuff of this world to distract or divert us from the all-encompassing, all-satisfying, all-consuming passion for knowing and living in Jesus Christ. And although we have many worldly pleasures and stuff that can be good gifts from God, they can never be allowed to replace or compete with God. Compared to Him, they are meaningless. I love what Paul says about that in Philippians 3, 8, 9, which Piper referenced earlier, really, really quickly. After talking about all the worldly things he sacrificed for Christ, he says, But what, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And just so you understand, sometimes the translators took, took a little easy on our sensibilities. The Greek word translated rubbish, skubalon, literally means rubbish and muck of many kinds, including not only rotten food, but excrement and rotting corpses. It implies nasty, decaying worthlessness. That is what the pleasures and stuff of this world amount to in comparison to the glory of Christ. We don't need to feel badly for our stuff. They're gifts of God. We should have hearts of thanksgiving for what he's provided for us. And we can give gifts and receive gifts this Christmas season. But I pray that in that and in the, in the ongoing details of our lives, 
we would allow God to speak to us through what we have studied this morning to know deep down in our hearts that true joy, peace, contentment, and wisdom is only found in Him. And so if you're here this morning, you have not repented and given your life to Christ, please know that the, not only can you never work your way to heaven or God, you will never, never find ultimate satisfaction, contentment, and joy in anything in this life. God created you to know and worship Him. If you're here and you are saved, let me remind you. Let Solomon remind you. Let God remind you through his inerrant word, this life is not it. We don't have a shallow faith that just seeks the things of earth in Jesus' name. We have a deep faith. We've been given eyes to see beyond the things of this life. Yes, enjoy the things God has given you, but don't just live the American dream in the name of God. The reason you are here is to know Him more and to proclaim Him in the very way you live. Don't just spend your days trying to figure out how you can get more here. Spend your days how you can get to know Him deeper. Pray, study Scripture, fellowship with believers. Proclaim His name every opportunity you get. Do all for His glory. Seek Him. This life is not just about getting saved and then living for you. It's to know, love, worship, serve, and proclaim Christ in all things. And so if there's anything getting in the way of that, shed it. Get rid of it. Run to your Savior. Bask in His word and His glory. Fix your gaze on Him. Fix your gaze on eternity. Glorify Him by finding your contentment in Him. That's the reason you were created. He is the only true source of joy, pleasure, and contentment. And living with him is the all-satisfying treasure of our lives. Then points people to that joy. So they too can receive the joy, peace, and contentment that we have in him. Let's pray. God, we, we praise you. We are so thankful that through your word and your spirit, you've given us eyes to see beyond the stuff of this world. We are so grateful for all that you have given us. And Lord, we want to live lives, lives of thanksgiving for those things. But most of all, Lord, we never want any of these things to compete with you. We want to not just say, but we want to live with you as our true treasure, knowing from firsthand experience that joy ultimate complete joy never comes in anything but you and lord as that truth settles itself in our hearts and minds i pray that it would just burst out of our lips as we sing your praises to this world so that more and more could come to that saving truth we love you our holy almighty savior and lord amen